Greetings and peace. Welcome everybody to Path and Present Podcast. This is your host, Baraka Blue, and we have a wonderful podcast this week. I want to uh, start off with just a few updates or announcements. Um, the first one is that I'll be in the UAE at the end of March and early April. Um, April 2nd, I'll be at NYU Abu Dhabi for uh, a series of programs. And in fact, the program that I'll be uh, doing fits very well with the theme of this week's podcast because the event is is called Spirituality in Storytelling, Sufi Poetry, and the Islamic Oral Tradition. So as you'll see, this podcast is very much about storytelling. Um, yeah, so that's where I'll be um, early April. And then um, second half of April, I'll be in the States. I'll be doing a series of programs with Wasat in Seattle. Uh, but we'll announce that a bit later. Um, but the other thing that I really wanted to announce is that uh, April is Poetry Month. And in addition to being Poetry Month, uh, which is a great time to celebrate poetry. It is also the month right before Ramadan. Ramadan starts May 5th, I believe, the beginning of May this year. And the third thing that, that April is, is it's the one-year anniversary of the Rumi Center online courses that we've been doing. So we've been doing a course every quarter for a year now, and uh, that's great news, and we want to celebrate and in celebration of those three things, we're going to be offering another Opening the Eye of the Heart course uh, for April. And I believe it will begin April 7th. Um, you can find information for this at RumiCenterWorkshops.com. But I really want to encourage everybody because it's going to be a great time. We're going to celebrate poetry for Poetry Month. We're going to celebrate the fact that this course has been going now. And um, you know, hundreds of people have gone through the course. And we're going to celebrate the fact that uh, this is a profound tool for preparing our hearts and our presence uh, for Ramadan. So we welcome everybody. If you haven't taken the course yet, you're most welcome. Um, it, it, you know, we really explore writing as a spiritual practice. Uh, we read different mystical poets from all across the world, and we talk about some of the tools and tricks of the trade, so to speak, the craft of poetry. But it's really for everybody. It's not just for poets or writers. It's for everybody who would like some more stillness, some presence, some introspection, as well as just to be in a cohort of really amazing, uh, loving, supportive, creative people on the spiritual path. So if you're interested, again, that's RumiCenterWorkshops.com. And um, these tend to fill up pretty quick. So if you're interested in that, please do check it out. Um, yes. So as for this podcast, the guest is Cyrus Zargar and Cyrus is a professor at, is it Central Florida? He is the El Ghazali Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Central Florida. Um, and he wrote a great book, one of my favorite books of 2018. It's called The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic philosophy and Sufism. And 
I love it because he speaks about imagination. He speaks about the power of story, um, which, you know, all art forms are forms of storytelling. And just the importance of storytelling for the human soul, particularly as it was seen by the great philosophers and the great mystics uh, of Islam, in uh, forming the soul and actually drawing the soul into the divine presence. So uh, I really loved it. It's a great topic, and we had a great conversation. So uh, check out the book, and definitely check out the conversation. Uh, lastly, what I wanted to say is, please, uh, first of all, thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. It's been great. It's been growing a lot. And um, this year, we made a commitment to try to be more consistent. We've been averaging one a month, but we're trying to double that this, uh, this year. So, and your support makes that possible. So please continue to share it with anybody uh, who you think might like it. Word of mouth is, is the best. Uh, and then if you have an iPhone or Apple products, um, definitely subscribe on iTunes because that uh, will allow it to come into your phone to be downloaded uh, every time that we release it. And then please, if you haven't yet, rate, like, uh, and comment on the iTunes because that helps it move up the charts and helps more people see it. Um, and then lastly, if you have the means, uh, please do support us on Patreon. And Patreon is a way that people can support content creators. Patreon.com slash path and present is our Patreon page for this podcast. And uh, as much as this is a labor of, lo labor of love, there are a number of costs um, that go into this, including um, the editing, website stuff, uh, not to mention the technology needed to make this happen, microphones, computers, etc. So uh, please do support if you can. And uh, that just helps us put more time and energy into it as well. Um, and one of the things that we're going to be doing this year that we're going to be trying out is we're recording videos of some of these podcasts, including this one. And so uh, some of you can see me if you're watching this as opposed to just listening. And um, we're releasing those exclusively for the Patreon supporters. So everyone who supports on Patreon uh, can see this and can see these conversations. And, um, you know, anyone who supports with a dollar, five dollars or anything like that gets access to that. So uh, please check that out and support if you can, because uh, you make this possible. All right, y'all. Polish Mir, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism, um, is a book that is my favorite book of 2018. And I was trying to think of why. And it's related to a question that I was wondering for you, which, which is essentially the kind of why this book. And as I was thinking of why this book is important for me, you know, it kind of relates to the fact that all art forms are in their essence storytelling mm -hmm. right they're a mode of storytelling and a good story and you have a, a line in here that maybe you could even expand on about i think it was in the chapter on ibn sina if i'm not mistaken this idea that a profound story especially like an allegory a story that has deep 
meanings that can be drawn from it and that has symbolic value. Mm-hmm. It's at once engaging the kind of peak of your intellect or your rational faculty because you're engaging in truth. You're, mm-hmm. you're kind of discovering truth. But it's also engaging the peak of your imaginative faculty right. because it's doing it through story, through narrative, through symbol, through, uh, you know, projecting this, um, this world in your inner eye. You know, like we have a movie theater inside of ourselves. Right. When we read a story, we hear a story, we see all the characters and we actually inside of us make the, the whole, you know, the set, the whole narrative. And that's why when you read a book that's really profound and then you watch the movie, even if it's a good movie, it's never as good as the book. Right. Right. Because you are, you're like, that's not how the character looked. That's not how his home looked because you have it in your, in your mind's eye. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just curious in what made you want to engage this topic and particularly the relationship between storytelling and the pursuit pursuit of virtue mm-hmm. and what makes storytelling a profound tool for virtue and for self-transformation? Those are great questions. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that, you know, you and I share this, this interest in, in art and storytelling. And so um, for me, I think the key was the uh, poetry of Molana Jalaluddin Rumi. And um, you know, uh, even before I started the book, you know, there's, there's a, you know, from whether from graduate school or from, you know, from, you know, from after that, when it was, you know, just reading articles or books about Rumi, I mean, you know, there's so many different ways to approach uh, him, but what, what you see less of, or even almost, you know, nothing of in, in academic literature is, you know, how do we, how do you read Rumi's poetry, especially his narrative poetry to become a complete human being? Right. And because that seems like that's the purpose for his intended audience. I mean, it's even sometimes it's the stated purpose, right, for his intended audience. So that was what was really interesting for me. So even even before I got into the book, um, for me, it was, you know, I was thinking about Rumi's narrative poetry, his storytelling um, and, and how he sort of communicates this, you know, the completion of, of you know, human human potential. And what I realized is that in order to get to the bottom of it, I need to understand all these other strains of thought that are informing his writing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that includes Islamic philosophy, even though he's not, he's not keen on the philosophers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way that was what they, at the very, very, very beginnings informed the book. I wanted to write a book about virtue ethics, but I really wanted to get to that, that Rumi. That's why I put his chapter last. That's why I kind of felt like the whole thing was building to, to that. Um, and, uh, and there's a magic to the way, uh, to answer your, the second part of your question, if you, if you read Rumi or if you read the poet Saadi or if you read Attar, and I'm naming the Persian examples, but on the other hand, if you read Khalil Wadimna or if you read, um, do you read the allegories that you mentioned in, in Arabic, um, there's something different between the, the between telling something someone that something is virtuous and describing it, and illustrating illustrating it for them in an example, so they can have something to imitate, so they understand it in context. And I think the key word is context, because that's how human beings do moral reasoning. They think about their context, yeah. and they think about very often what would a virtuous person do in this context. You know, they have this imagined ideal. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you raise a couple things which I'm really interested in. Um, the first one is in Rumi. Obviously, uh, we share that that deep inspiration, um, Molana Rumi. And I was thinking about this recently for because it was Christmas and most of my family's Christian. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of the, you know, most, I think, educated Christian people in the West know that Jesus and Mary are mentioned in the Quran. But what a lot of people don't know is the kind of centrality of Jesus in Sufism, in Islamic right. spirituality, especially mm-hmm. the kind of as this symbol mm-hmm. of the ruh, the higher yeah. self. And right. the, the, because of, you know, in the Quran, him being called ruh Allah, the spirit mm-hmm. of God. And I was kind of reflecting on this very simple, I guess you could call it an allegory, even though it's only a few lines, this idea of, Jesus riding on his donkey through the marketplace that Rumi talks about. Yeah. And that Jesus being drunk on God and the donkey being drunk on barley. (laughs) And that, you know, it's kind of comical, but it's also in a few lines, a very profound uh, teaching because Jesus is the Ruh, the spirit. Right. He symbolizes the spiritual potential of actualization, of realization, of awakening within each of us. But yet the donkey, that dumb ass, is also right. something inside of each one of us. Right. And that's the nafsa lamara bisu, that lower self, which is okay. commanding us to egotism, to selfishness. And what's profound is that they're both drunk. Yeah. But they're just drunk on their own level. And yeah. really what's beautiful about that is the legal theorists may say, don't get drunk. Right. But what Rumi's saying is quite the opposite. He's saying, I'm not going to say don't get drunk, but I'm just going to say upgrade your intoxicants. There's something wow. better that you can be yeah. drunk upon. And <laughs> yeah. all the things of this world, not only the kind of physical pleasures, yeah. of food and, and, and copulation, but even the kind of things that, that the ego desires, such as uh, wealth and fame and, and notoriety and, and kind of um, esteem in the eyes of men and power and all these things, those are all barley, the cheapest grains. It's like the slop that you toss to the pigs compared to those who have awakened to these, to the wine of spiritual realization of marifa and awakened this higher faculty of perception and are experiencing the divine effulgence and unfolding in their very being. For them, they're experiencing a type of drunkenness, which is so far beyond any type of joy or pleasure or, or drunkenness in this world. That if you knew, like as the Sufis say, if the, if the kings and rulers knew of the experiences we have, they would send their armies to fight us for it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a higher yeah. potential of experience. So just in that simple kind of comical allegory of just Jesus on a donkey in the marketplace, yeah. he's telling this profound, this profound teaching. And that yeah. he also mentions that most people or a lot of people, right, they're they're for the saints the jesus is really like guiding and disciplining the donkey it's in control but for a lot of people the roles are reversed and the donkey has mounted their jesus right and is shackled their spiritual nature and telling it where to go right and so i think about that because you know in the mesnavi rumi's masterpiece it's you know, thousands and thousands of lines of couplets and telling all these different stories from the reed flute to the 
the donkey and Jesus to the lion and the mirror, from mythical creatures to um, prophetic uh, prophets from history. But in a sense, you could say, I'm curious if you would agree with this, but what I was reflecting on is, in a sense, you could say it's all telling one narrative in a, in a thousand different ways, which is that this narrative of the human potential yeah. and the human awakening. And there are the prophets and the saints and sages, and we have this pers- ability to be the reed flute that is empty for the divine breath to blow through or right. the mirror that is polished, as you call your yeah. book, for yeah. the divine names and qualities and attributes to po- fully reflect. And yeah. all the stories are illustrating this and that that's the purpose of existence. And so, but on the, on the, what's amazing, and I'd like to hear, you know, yeah. what you have to say about this as well, is that Rumi decides on some level that it's not, he's not going to write a philosophical treatise. He's not going to write a step-by-step manual of the path, but that the, the best way to guide the disciples is through art, that he's going to write a poem. And that's how he's going to take you to this realization. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. And if you <clears throat> actually, I, I very much agree with your with with the way you're seeing, um, you know, Rumi's storytelling and his uh, his writing. I mean, and if you think about that example of the donkey, I mean, it also changes from now from here on out. If you lived in that world where it would be common for people to write, you know, beasts of burden, you're going to look at things differently. Yes. You know, it changes the way you see the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other point, just kind of just kind of following up on what you're saying um i'm I, this is from ibn al-arabi because i'm working on this article about uh you know um jesus and speech in ibn al-arabi the, the concepts mm-hmm. of, of speech and speech of the soul yeah it, it, you know relative to us uh, jesus is ruh relative to god to allah he's nafs you know mm-hmm. and so there's this there's this beautiful thing where you know he has this ability uh to communicate he's a he's a kind of like a a go-between, an intermediate, intermediary, uh, mm-hmm. an intermediary between the two. So, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very, a very profound way of seeing the world, and that's why I think sometimes it lends itself to repetition, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's, <clears throat> it's not the kind of thing that you just learn and move on. It's the kind of thing that uh, you hear more often, and um, it sets in. You know, yes. um, it, it, it's worth it to hear it a number of different ways. Um, until you actually, you know, really get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, even in our modern world where, you know, the uh, profound medium of storytelling now is movies, which are like yeah. storytelling with yeah. light, interestingly enough. Right? right. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of movies that become like, uh, not only box office hits, but kind of like, touchstones for for our society that we can all reference uh are often these allegorical stories that's like the matrix like lord of the rings obviously star wars is maybe the even the best example and these are right people will reference them in daily speech right yeah yeah, you know, yeah. red pill or blue pill you know what yeah. i mean like yeah, yeah. um yeah. dark side yeah you know where you're going to the dark side yeah. right yeah. um you know people will reference like you know, uh, Yoda and kind of in, in, in essence of, and then Lord of the Rings, of course. So, and these are profound, profound um, teachings. And actually, like you say, I think they strike us because even if we don't realize it 
you know, um, in a way that we could articulate intuitively, we realize that there's some relation to us and to our world, right? Yeah. The matrix isn't just a good story, but there's something that it's getting at that is happening here and now. Yeah. It's a shared, it's a shared event that helps all of us make sense of our world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we're, um, we have some perceived problem, threat, fear, lack, and what the, what the filmmaker, the writer, um, I mean, what makes film so special, I think, is uh, all the different kinds of artistry that go on in it. You've got music. You've got, you've got the visual arts. You've got the cinematography. You've got the, the screenwriting. Um, it's a really beautiful medium in that way. I mean, it involves everything. Um, but as you pointed out earlier on, you know, when we were talking, uh, the flip side is that it leaves out um, it, it gives you so much that the role of the imagination, right, mm. is, is lessened. But um, what the filmmaker does is take all of that and, and as you say, give it, a, give it a kind of narrative sense. And then we buy, we, you know, we know that, we share that experience, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why for, um, for, for a lot of people, you know, if they don't understand the context, they don't, they won't, they don't like to watch older movies, you know. Mm-hmm it just doesn't, it doesn't connect with them as well because they have no idea what, what was going on back then. Or if they see it, they'll interpret it in a way that's just incorrect. That's not what it meant at that time. So that's, that's a very good point. So I think you talk about it in your paper, but why do you think that Rumi and others within the Sufi tradition more generally or the philosophical tradition, why did they do they talk about this? Do they talk about what we're saying essentially that the kind of effectiveness of stories mm-hmm. to affect the human soul, to transform a, a person? They do. They do. Well, uh, one thing that comes to mind immediately is the, um, but there, I can think of a few examples, um, but the one, one thing that immediately comes to mind are, as you said, the opening uh, verses of the Masnavi, you know, the Beshno as listen to the read. Um, and then there's different, there's different versions, but some say, you know, uh, as it tells the story, as it's, it's narrating. Mm-hmm. And then what's it narrating? It's, it's, um, it's narrating its complaint. It's telling you the story of, of separations, right? As Jodaiha, it's, it's complaining and telling you this story that has to do with that it once belonged to this place and then it was separated from that place you know how it begins, right? And, and, um, and all longing, all human pain is really that, is that pain for the origin, for the place of origin, yeah. which, is, which is God. Um, but it's also a commentary on story because if all, if, all compl- if all longing and all pain is that, then in a sense what Rumi's saying is all narrative is that. And that's why I really agreed with the way you were reading the Messenger, right? All narrative is this story of... Um, being separated from the origin and, and going back to it. Now he doesn't say that, but I mean it's it's implied. It's like you know, yeah. um, this is what this is what makes storytelling valuable. Um, there are comments on that was always something that interests me was um, art and beauty in in Sufism. Yeah. And in my, my first book, Sufi Aesthetics, that was the that was the focus. Um, and the 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 one thing that I find interesting is that uh, you know in Rumi's time. Um, there was a kind of agreement that uh, the art that involved language was the highest expression of art and the highest expression of beauty. And there's this common kind of disparaging of the visual arts. Ghazali right. does it. Um, 
you know, in a way, Rumi does it with the story in which he borrows from Ghazali, but that, you know, the, that appears in the book, the story Chinese of Chinese and the Byzantines, right? The painting. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, nothing is, or polishing is better than these, you know, little drawings. There's kind of almost this dismissal as visual arts. Right. But there is a really, yeah, there is this, there's this. For those that don't know that story, would you just like really quick just show Yeah, yeah and I, I might get it mixed up because Ghazali and Rumi, they, they flip them. They tell them, they, they, the, mm. the role of the Byzantines and the, uh, Chinese. And the Chinese are flipped so in, in, in the two versions. But the, um, so the, the, the story goes, that there's a king and um, the king wants to, to, to decide who, who are the better artisans and the better craftsmen, um, the, 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 the Byzantines or the Greeks, and on the one hand, and the Chinese on the other. And he gives them sort of two walls in between which there's a, there's a barrier. So they, you know, they can't see each other's work and they have, they're supposed to you know, do what they will with the walls and, and show their prowess as, as artists. So, um, I think in Rumi's story, if I'm not mistaken, it's the uh, it's the Chinese, right, who start to to do the the the, the drawings. They make this beautiful, elaborate thing. I remembered it the other way around. Okay, so Chinese, you might be right. But yeah, okay. I can't remember either. I'll do it. The, I'll do it the other way around. Because as I said, in in it's interesting that that Rumi flips whatever it that was. That is, I didn't notice that. Yeah. yeah so okay. So uh, so the let's say the the Greeks begin to decorate lavishly. Uh, this, this, with, with all this, this fine artwork, one side of the wall, whereas the the uh, the the Chinese, right, the other side, they they just start to clean it and polish it and, and take everything down and scrub it, and and when they come to when the king comes to make his decision and lifts the barrier between them, uh, he looks at one side and you know the the the, the ornate decorations are beautiful, but then when he looks at the other side, what they've created is this mirror, and when the artistry of the other side is reflected in the mirror, it actually becomes more beautiful. It mm. gains a kind of luminosity and re its mm. reflection that it didn't have on that side, right? And so um, it was very interesting. <laughs> kind of, kind of, I always think of HD television when I hear that because, you know, sometimes things look better on HD TV than they do in reality. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but anyways, so, um, yeah, so the, of course, you know, Ghazali uh, uses this as a, means to discuss knowledge and the acquisition, the concept that um, we think a lot about knowledge as acquisition, but, but real true knowledge is not a matter of acquiring things, acquiring facts and acquiring uh, forms in the soul, but rather what really is, is about stripping down and so that you're reflecting knowledge, you know, you, you, become, you become this kind of passive receptacle for, for knowledge. And Rumi uses it for, for a similar thing, but I'm saying that sort of, there's also a subtle dismissal of, the visual arts and sometimes mm -hmm. it's not so subtle you know mm -hmm. ibn arabi says it pretty explicitly that it's you know, he calls them drawings in the bat in the hamas you know, the, the, so is it because of this fact that the visual arts engage your imagination in the sense that you in your mind's eye you get to see the visuals whereas it's for actual visual things it kind of they do the imagination's work for you yeah. When you hear someone tell a story, again, the projector displays it in, in your mind's eye. You yeah. see the movie inside of yourselves, whereas when you watch a movie or a painting, yeah. it kind of does that work for you. Is that one of the reasons or is there something else? There might be an element of that, but usually what it is is um, that it's, it's, you know, these figures in this time period really saw language mm -hmm. as a means to the truth. Right. You know, they saw um, language as 
the uh, they had what you'd call a logocentric sure. uh, worldview, where the, the the word you know has been revealed by God. So you know, Allah, when Allah gave human beings the the, the greatest manifestation of Himself, it was in words. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that's why poetry was so important to them as well, because poetry captures meaning um, in a way that uh, that the other art are you know arts don't you know um it, it, it's also a, i think a cultural thing right. i mean you know there certainly was art there was you know quite a lot of it um but i just think for them they these were uh, scholars who had been trained really to think about w- words right um, you know. and i think that that ties in really beautifully with the fact that everywhere that islam spreads that poetry becomes it, it, it unleashes a kind of flood of poetry in every yeah. single language of, of the Muslims That's and true. I think that has to do with the Quran itself and the centrality of the Quran that this is kind of a poetic or super poetic speech but it's at the center of a civilization so yeah. everything is kind of a commentary on it so it kind of creates this symbolic universe and I, I was thinking about that when we talk about story because we're all kind of living in a story in the sense that, and someone living right next door, especially in the modern world, they may be living in a totally different story. Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. sense that like, you know, and that's what's beautiful about friendship and companionship and people on the path, especially because you have the shared narrative. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, just like an inside joke, you can ref, you don't have to say much. You could say one word mm-hmm. and we know what we're talking about. Right. Right. And same with, with Rumi and all these things. It's, it's, it's just like, we can just reference Jesus, we can reference Fir'aun, we can reference the wine, we can reference the reed flute, and everyone knows what's going on. Right, right. You know what I mean? Whereas other people outside of that story, people that come to Rumi now, now 800 years later from a Western modern, uh, they need a a lot of that stuff to be explained. They can appreciate the beauty and some of it is very clear, but also there's a a level of deep symbolism which is going to be lost if you're not inside that story. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And we have our own um, symbols that we've developed, yes. our own cultural symbols. You know, and that's what makes translation so difficult. Yes. I mean, when you, when you look at the work of Coleman Barks, on the one hand, it's, uh, you know, I, some, some scholars of Rumi are, are sort of hesitant to embrace it. But on the other hand, there's a kind of brilliance to it, you know? Yes. It's, it's um, I mean, I can't deny myself way, way back, you know, in my youth, Opening up a book, I, I didn't know, you know, Persian. I can't, I can't deny opening up a, a book, the, the beauty and opening up Coleman Barks' translations of just being sucked into it. Because what he was able to do is take, a, you know, take some concepts from Rumi and then take the, the symbolic language that we all live in, you know, and put this in that or draw it into it. And, and, and in a way, that's a really beautiful act of translation. Of course, yes, if you want to study Rumi, you have to study Rumi. It's not, it's, it's not the kind of translation that'll do it for you. You know, sure. you have, you know it's, um, it's a much harder thing to do. Yeah, I'm glad you, you say that. I really feel the same way. And people, especially, I get why Muslims often are like, oh, the, he, you know, they complain about the popular versions of Rumi. But it's like, how about also looking at the fact that like people love Rumi. <laughs> people love, yeah. in our culture, love it. It's been made beautiful to them. Yeah. And like, let's celebrate that. And then let's be a bridge to some of the deeper meanings if that's the case. Right. And the complaint, right? The, or the, the, the very, I would say that, the, okay, so the, it's a justified objection that yes. 
that the Rumi of these translations is often this, you know, Protestant friendly um, kind of uh, hippie. He's a beat poet. Beat poet. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all. I get that. Right. That's, that's okay. But um, who owns Rumi? So that, that's Coleman Bark speaking to some audience that he wants. That's, that's fine. Uh, I, I, I agree. We should historicize things and we should know what that, that's what that's the work that I do. Yeah. But, um, but I also have to acknowledge that it's not going to have that kind of appeal because as you said, you have to learn that language. Sure. You know, it's a lot, there's a lot of work to put into it, you know, to, to learn about the context to see, and then sometimes to be disappointed because you'll admit, I think um, that when you read Rumi mm -hmm. and he talks about, you know, a, a, he, a, a person beating a child or mm -hmm. sometimes the way he depicts women or, You'd be like, whoa, uh, you know, Rumi, what happened? You know, mm -hmm. I, I, um, well, what happened is he's, he's a man of, of the, the 13th century and um, that's going to show up, you know, and that's, that's not going to, that's not the kind of poetry that it, it, Barnes and Noble is going to be able to, to sell to a mass audience. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, mashallah. And it's interesting yeah, how cultural things change, right? It was Nicholson who, he was embarrassed by some of the kind of more, uh, like body. sultry yeah, body yeah, kind of yeah. aspects of Rumi. Yeah. So he translated those parts into Latin because he was yeah. embarrassed to translate them to English. Yeah. It was just, I That's interesting. Yeah. I remember, I, I, yeah, I remember seeing those and uh, the, for the first time being like, what is he doing? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, and you know, for me, I, I reflected on this a lot because, you know, the two things that I really remember from middle school, like that happened inside the classroom. Yeah. Right. I remember like girls and basketball games and stuff like that, but actually like things that I remember from inside the classroom are very few, but the two that stand out, the, okay. the number one is the day that our teacher taught us Plato's allegory of the cave. And mm -hmm. I was in seventh grade. Okay. And I'll never forget it. I knew yeah. it hit me. It pierced me in my heart. Like this is yeah. And this is true. And this is, yeah. this is happening. This is, yeah. we're in the cave. Yeah. And then the second one was we were studying Shakespeare and, you know, we acted out Romeo and Juliet. And what we, our teacher was a very, same teacher, very good teacher. And she had us acted out, but instead of Capulets and Montagues, it was Bloods and Crips. So she wow. made it like real for our, like, this is what was, there were rival gangs. So this is, and, you know, again, one of them, you know, Plato, in a sense, that allegory of the cave can be said to be almost like a foundational allegory of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Plato, everyone's commenting on Plato. And then Shakespeare, often seen as kind of the pinnacle of the English language, and the profundity of him is his development of character and mm -hmm. his, his the nuanced explorations yeah. of human choice and subjectivity vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis all these characters. Right. So this really speaks to me that there's something about narrative, there's something about allegory, which can somehow awaken in us yeah. a deeper understanding. Even in my kind of jumbled, you know, whatever, 13, 14 year old brain, yeah. there was something that pierced through everything right. and that, that, that altered me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. The interesting part is this debate as to like um, where someone like Avicenna, yeah. uh, you know, stood on, on 
on allegory. Yeah. Because it seems, I mean, well, at least, you know, Gutash, others have argued that, you know, for him, it's just a means to an end and it's a lower form of, you know, kind of bringing someone to, to, to these realizations right. um, that if someone can grasp them without the allegory, then that's, 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 that, that means a, a sort of more, it's sort of a better ability to, 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 to do the art of intellection and to get, yes. but, but, you know, uh, you know, when you look at what he's doing with the stories and uh, with the allegories and the subtleties that are in them, right. And the hints, and then you, you look at those who interpreted uh, his allegories and you look at what Sohavardi does, right. The, the philosopher, um, it's hard not to agree with you just, just what you said, that there's something profound that comes out of learning something through an allegory that you don't get mm. um, by, by just um, learning, you know, by just doing the, the reasoning process straight, straightforward without any, without any story. Yeah. 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 I remember that. Yeah. I'm in Avicenna and even Ghazali kind of takes that from, from Ibn Sina, this idea that like, you know, cause Ghazali, and Ibn Sina, they'll both kind of like say a the- theoretic abstract thing. And then yeah. they'll be like, and for the more dense of mind, for the more like stupid people, here's a, here's an allegory. Yeah, that's, yeah that, I mean, that's, yeah, I can see why, you know. Yeah, and Ghazali, he, he uses more allegories in um, his Persian writing. Mm-hmm. He does in the Arabic one, mm-hmm. uh, in the Kimiya Saadat, than he does in the Ihya um, al Yeah, and I mean, I, that would seem to suggest that because his his Persian audience is going to people, the people who can read Arabic wouldn't need to read the Persian, right? So right. If he's writing the Persian. It would seem for a broader, maybe less, probably less educated audience, and so he's giving them a lot of allegories. Um, but from a literary perspective. Mm-hmm. There's so much richness in that. Yes. I mean, I to this day, um, when I when I want, when someone asks me, well, you know, what's a good? I, I, I want to read something on Ghazali. I want to learn about Ghazali. You tell them read the Alchemy of Happiness. Start mm-hmm. there. You know, read the first. You know, read the first few chapters on knowing yourself, yeah. knowing the afterlife. He sets it up so beautifully. You realize this is a this is a really great teacher. You know that. Um, just like your teacher was, you know, that can bring me to these concepts, uh, to these difficult theological concepts, you know, using something that I'll never forget that I can relate to the world around me. So whether it's for the simple minded or not, if it works, it works, you know? Yeah. And that actually brings up an interesting uh, question that I, that I wanted to ask, and you kind of uh, address it in the book, but I'd love to hear you share it here is you know, you're, you're saying storytelling in Islamic philosophy and Sufism. Yeah. And those are two uh, different fields. And for some people, they may see them as, as, as very uh, separate. And even yeah. maybe different Sufis and different philosophers would also say that they're separate. Yeah. They're, but, yeah. but you show that there is a, actually, especially in, in virtue right. theory, there's a, there's a big overlap. So maybe you could just kind of introduce why you... Why, why yeah. you did that and why that's the case. Yeah, and you, and you put it very well. So they're different, they're different um, as you say, they're different sciences even, we can call them, um, and were treated as such. It's not to say that there weren't people who crossed over, like the philosopher Sohrawardi that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, can, he was clearly a Sufi and he was clearly a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some debate as to how he wrote primarily, you know, like when he was writing, what was his end? Was he really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, writing for some let's say super rational 
realization or was he really just um, making modifications to what Avicenna wrote? Anyways, regardless, there were people like him or Ibn Tufail who had, you know, he had Sufi credentials, but he's writing as a philosopher. So there were people who crossed over. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, exactly as you said, that, it, that um, what was interesting to me is that when it came to, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of talking about human, human completion, the, the cultivation of virtues, um, it, when it came, and, and it came especially to what comes beyond the cult of, cultivation of virtues, that's when um, you, saw a lot, you see a lot of crossover between um, the Sufism and philosophy. So the Sufis are borrowing things from the philosophers, and the philosophers, even those who are seen as um, not, you know, sometimes described as not really all that interested in Sufism, like, like Avicenna, they cross over into, into Sufism. So Avicenna, you know, he writes about Nafsalamara. You know, he writes about, he, he takes these terms from Sufism and he's using them in his writing. He's interested in them when it, when it comes to him um, writing about, uh, you know, you know Ma'rifa and, and what's in that, in that which is beyond just the simple cultivation of virtue. So yes, it was there. And I think that's what makes it really interesting. That's where I think if, if we want to say something like Islamic virtue ethics, right, which is different from the, you know, the Greek tradition of virtue ethics, I think if you want to say that it exists in some way and it's something that we can study, I think it, it, it lies somewhere between these two or is shared between them and others. I mean, there's, there's so many things I couldn't include, right? There's a whole tradition of wisdom literature um, that's not necessarily Sufi or philosophical, but it is there. Um, there's Fukaha who are writing about the virtues, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that's in, in sometimes in really interesting ways. They'll take a sort of a, um, they'll relate it to Islamic law or it'll be a, a separate thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think really, if you step back, that, what unites the philosophers and the Sufis is that they they both acknowledge and affirm that, to use Plato's allegory, that we're in a cave, but that there is a way out. That this world, as it's experienced by most people, is not the real world. Mm-hmm. It's not reality. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of illusory mix of light and dark, of real and unreal. Mm-hmm. But there is a way to get there and they differ on how to get there, but mm-hmm. they also overlap significantly. That's right. And that's really the virtue that this, and this is why, you know, you, you, you show like the polished mirror because our self, our consciousness, our heart, our intellect can be polished right. so that we fully reflect these higher qualities, the, the ultimate reality, the light of truth. And, the method to get there, they may differ a little bit, but I think it's actually a, a little bit, to me, it's quite astonishing how much similarity they have. It's really mm-hmm. about acquiring the virtues, um, removing the ego's illusory um, kind of desires and pulls which corrode the mirror, block the light, cover the cup, fill the reed flute, whatever mm-hmm. analogy we want to use, mm-hmm. but are veiling us, this, this thin veil, even the mm-hmm. veil itself mm-hmm. that is, is an analogy, is an allegory, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. from seeing things as they truly are. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, and the thing is, if you read Ghazali, you read Ibn al-Arabi, you read Maulana Rumi, who, you know, three great Sufi thinkers, they're deeply steeped in philosophy. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I was shocked to the extent, uh, you know, I had studied Ghazali and read him with different mm-hmm. Sufi teachers. Mm-hmm. When I did my master's degree, I, mm-hmm. I wrote on Al-Ghazali. And so I read, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't until I really read Ibn Sina and then started reading the Greek philosophical mm-hmm. works that I realized how indebted, how mm-hmm. much yeah. he's taking from Ibn Sina, even though he's, yeah. people think, oh, he killed philosophy. But it's mm-hmm. like, if you understand how much he took, mm-hmm. it would shock most kind of pious traditionalists, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. how much you might have took from them. Yeah. So, but in, in Ibn, Ibn Arabi, I wonder if this is a good kind of meeting point for this discussion. Mm-hmm. He tells that story of when he was a young man and he meets Ibn Rushd. You're right. Ibn Rushd being this kind of representative of the yeah. later philosophical tradition. Yeah. Ibn Arabi being Shaykh al-Akbar, the, great, the greatest Sufi sage. And when they embrace, because Ibn Arabi's father was a friend of Ibn Rushd, so he arranged yeah. this meeting. So he comes into, and Ibn Rushd was a famous judge and yeah. philosopher, etc. at the time, uh, Averroes, and they meet and they have this profound meeting that Ibn Arabi narrates in which Ibn Rushd sa- says, basically why he wanted to meet Ibn Arabi is because he hears that there's this boy that attained the, the great opening without any work. Essentially, right. it just came yeah. to him. And he knew theoretically that it was possible. But the philosopher said, no, you have to refine your intellect in these things to attain that. Yeah. <laughs> and so he asked him when they embraced, he said, what, he was, it was like, yes or no, right? Yeah. The only, and, he said, yeah. and he said, yes. And then he smiled. But then he said, yeah. no. Yeah. Between the yes and no, heads leave their bodies and spirits, yeah. le- heads leave necks and sp- yeah. spirits leave bodies. Some yeah. like... Yeah. profound kind of allegorical thing yeah. which he said caused ibn rush the, the 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 blood to to rush from his face and he turned white with kind yeah. of yeah so maybe you you know you could right. uh, you remember it so well yeah yeah you're right yeah i love that story um no you're completely right uh i mean i think the interesting thing for me in writing the book um is going back to ghazali um so yeah ghazali you know is someone who took an interest in philosophy uh, and um and knows it pretty well, and, and, and um, but he sees Sufism as, as you pointed out, as as a, a kind of way beyond philosophy, yeah. and because Sufism gives people something very practical uh, where they can perfect themselves in the way that that philosophers can, and what and what makes philosophers wrong is that they, is that somehow they assume that merely by um, by using by by the, the intellectual process um, by reasoning somehow they can achieve this great end and they can't right now whether he's right or wrong it 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 leads to a kind of difference in the way philosophers write and the way sufis write when it comes to virtue ethics the philosophers do in the end see um this ethics as a kind um as a means to allowing the the the, uh, um allowing the rational soul to do its thing right and allowing it to become intellect they that's more or less what they see. And so there's something, some practical advice there. And I tried to dig through that and show Sohrawardi has more than others. There's some practical advice there, but it, it's limited. But then when you go to the Sufi side, because the Sufis see the, the practical part, you know, the training as their main focus and the main part of their science, it's so deep and there's so much there that it really, it, it really does overshadow philosophy when, when it comes to, what you could call this virtue ethics. And that's why I put it at the latter half of the book. That's why Sufism, it, it really is almost like the, you know, higher education of, 
of Islamic virtue ethics, the subtleties of, well, what is an intention? You know, what is, what is it, um, you know, when you're training the soul, what, what should you monitor? And then, you know, you start with monitoring the senses, but then you also be, you, you begin to monitor the heart. What does it mean to monitor the heart? To be careful about what enters even the heart, you know? It becomes so profound um, that um, you, you can see why someone like Ghazali really took to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it offers, it offers something very practical. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and, and Ghazali has such a profound critique of not only the philosophers, but the, the scholars in general, because he's saying it, ilm can't get you there. It's right. ilm and amal. It's right. not just knowledge, but it's knowledge and works and action and implementation right. and embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what he says to the Sufis. That's why they are the, the, the people of truth, according to Al-Ghazali, because they, they understand that knowledge is only such that it can be implemented. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that all, on the other hand, people that only think, see works without understanding that it's all about the heart. Right. The whole thing is about the heart. It, yeah. you know, it's, it's that hadith nawafil, that you know, the actions are so that you draw near to God until yeah. he loves you. And when he loves you, you become the eye with which you see, the ear with right. which you hear, the hand with which you grasp. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, these things are really amazing. Um, really amazing. And I love what you said about how I, I really think this is a profound thing that these stories, they're not just things we read for edification, but we actually come to live in, in these, these mm-hmm. stories. And I, and I think about this a lot yeah. as someone who converted to Islam at a young age, because there's something about you come to step into a new universe. Like I'm the same body, whatever, but I live in a new world because, and you literally, everything is renamed, which is interesting. You learn a new word for everything. Right. Yeah, it, that's you know, true. Everything from the physical universe to, and so the, I'm really interested in the yeah. ways that these stories that we embody, that we live inside of, color our very experience of reality itself. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, maybe maybe you've experienced this. I think a lot of us have. It, where this case where uh, you um, you 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 hear a story, let's say a hadith, okay, and um, Later, someone comes along and it's beautiful and it affects you mm-hmm. and it stays with you. And you're like, wow, this is so profound, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you bring it up all the time. And then later, someone sh- shows you that this hadith, it has no source or mm-hmm. it's not in the books or, you know, whatever. Or maybe there was a, an element in it that was reported to you wrong. But the story stays with you and it, it, made, it kind of keeps that kind of truth element to it. So you stop caring whether it's narrated or not. Now, I'm, I know we're treading into dangerous kind of territory because we're like, well, so it doesn't matter if it's true or not. No, it does matter. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about is the fact that um, stories, yes, uh, these stories about prophets, these stories about great people, on the one hand, they com- communicate sort of historical facts. But on the other hand, they communicate universal truths. That's the part that allegory, that, that people who, you know, who deal in allegories and, um, and the poets are interested in, is the yeah. universal truths, you know? And as and, you say, it makes you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're getting at this other point that I was thinking about too, is that like, what's, you know, Rumi in particular, but the Sufis more generally, they really emphasize that, for instance, 
the Quran, everything that's in the scripture is, is inside of you. Right. So they emphasize this relationship to the symbolic, to the human subjectivity, to the archetypal. So, you know, Rumi very explicitly says when you read about Pharaoh, you know, the point is in the Quran or in the scripture, the point is not to say once upon a time there was a terrible tyrant, but to understand that the terrible tyrant is inside of each one of us. Right. And the Moses is too. Yeah. So this, you know what I mean? Like yeah. which path are we going to choose? Yeah. Which, and, and, and he that's, can do that. Yeah. He can do that in children's tales too, or what seem to be children's tales mm-hmm. or in, as you said, body kind of uh, raunchy jokes, you mm-hmm. know, or, and he's showing you in a way he's showing you a, a hermeneutical process, which is here's how you read the universe. You know, this is how it's done. You know, uh, whether it's a story you hear or something you see, this is how, and he's creating in his audience those kinds of readers. And that's what makes it so powerful. I love that you say that. That's exactly the perfect way to say it. Here's how you read the universe. Yeah. And this is what a, a worldview gives you. And it's interesting because modern, secular, Western uh, people, we think, oh, we've done away with our myths, right? Yeah. We, now, but yeah. no, there's a whole inherited worldview. And that's actually one of the great gifts of studying traditional worldviews i'm sure you can relate to this is you 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 because we we think of you know when we look at other people they didn't necessarily even realize the conditioning of their worldview and how it played on how they saw right they were but we're we stand outside of history and pure objectivity but that is obviously false right we're also conditioned by our worldview, we have our mythology, we have our meta history, we have our narratives about what's going on. And that colors everything from how right. we see the world, how we see nature, how we see ourselves, it does. how we experience love and how we experience everything. It's, it's, absolutely, absolutely. We create. And so what takes the place of the traditional myths are nationalist myths for some, mm-hmm. or some um, scientific, mm-hmm. a, a kind of, um, you know, sort of tech lead to science where, and that creates for you. I mean, it's not to say that the science isn't true. It doesn't matter if it is or not, but it gives you some story, something to hang on to because people are ultimately interested in their origins. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And it's amazing. People, people don't realize how important it is. So for example, you know, if you grew up in the United States as a person of color, um, you know very well how important it is for your ethnicity or religion or whatever it is you identify with for it to have some meaningful, meaningful story in the American canvas. Mm-hmm. And many of them don't, and so it creates all kinds of problems. You know, it's like, you know, who am I if I don't have a good story? You know what I mean? If my people don't have a good story. Um, it, it, it's, it's really important. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's deep. Um, yeah, there's so much we could go into with that. I'm curious if... Um, and that actually reminds me, you talk about in the book about the, the humors, right? Mm-hmm. Be, you know, the, yeah. the four humors, because that kind of, you know, colors a lot of this pre-modern worldview and how yeah. people saw the body and, and even, psych, you know, the mind. Yeah. And you, you give the analogy of psychology for modern people. Right. Because it kind of comes in and filters in, right? Even if you don't have a degree in psychology, just everything... You, how you see the world and how you say, oh, I'm OCD. Yeah. Or, oh, that was my ego. Yeah. Or, oh, I had, that was a Freudian slip. Right. Or, oh, that was the Oedipal complex. And, yeah. you know, oh, I'm just working out my process with my, 
issues with my mother and father, right? Just the way that we see everything is psychologized, even if we don't necessarily realize it. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, if you, yeah, if you think about how often when someone has some sort of problem, um, you know, they, people will even diagnose each other or their friends. They'll say, oh, like, what happened in your childhood, you know? And well, you're, you're, you're right. And in the case of these writers, um, that, that psychology was based on, a, as you said, a humoral mo- model. So, you, you know, they thought about the way the universe was constructed, and the number four is really important. And so you have these four elements, and then within the body, you have the four humors. And they make these four humors... Um, they make you, because you're composed in a certain way, uh, you have certain tendencies. You know, you might be the person who's quick to anger, right? Um, or you might be kind of sluggish and um, more, more likely to be depressed. In either case, whatever, whichever way the balance in your body um, uh, makes it, um, that is the, the kind of the first thing you have to deal with. Um, if you're quick to anger, then you have to somehow counterbalance that, right? And try to, you know, um, slow down, ease up. If you're if you're too easygoing and you're too, you're kind of too melan- you're leaning toward melancholy, then you have to think about w- ways to get more active, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just the beginning, of course. Those are just the first stages. But it's inc- it's so interesting. So, for example, this is something that you know philo- that philosophers wrote quite a bit about when they would write about ethics: this balance of the humors. But then when you get to Rumi, right, by his time, it's so ingrained that I was, I, I was reading through the Masnavi and I'm like looking, I'm like, oh my gosh, he, he sometimes won't even mention the humors. But the, the character is like a stereotypical, mm-hmm. you know, you know, whatever you call him, choleric, or he's stereotypical, uh, can be diagnosed with this one uh, problem. And I, I mentioned one in the book in the last, in the chapter 10. But yeah, it was, it was a really important way that they saw the world that we don't, we don't see the world that way anymore, but we, a lot of the terms have stuck with us. So if you hear someone say, I'm livid, you know, um, I think the word is that doesn't livid, I think come from, comes from the word blue or something. Anyways, mm. these are humoral things. We hear them all the time, you know, don't lose your temper or, um, you know, a lot of the words for angry have to do with blood, um, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still in our language. But culturally, we, as you said, we've, we've changed our paradigm. So we don't think like that any, as much anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And another big kind of change, right? And this is what's interesting about like what it happens in the West in interesting ways is the whole kind of like Ptolemaic universe, right? right. We think, you know, what's the big deal? Some modern people, what's the big deal if the earth is the center, the sun is the center. But no, you, you have a whole narrative about what's right. happening, the seven heavens and the relation of the human being to the, the, the heavens and the earth right. and all these things. And so if you change the story, like all of it that's tied in and that's assumed and that's ingrained with that, uh, how do you kind of shift the, the, right. the story? You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a kind of reassessment that has to happen. And then I, I, this is what I get into in the conclusion, because the, in the conclusion of the book, I start to think about, okay, let's talk about relevance, you know, like how, what's relevant about this anymore, right? Now, the, the, the philosophy part, you have to deal with the humors. If you're going to talk about virtue ethics as written by the, the brethren or the brethren of purity or 
you know, Avicenna, um, you're going to, you have to deal with that humoral ethics, which isn't too difficult because the core of their argument is that human beings are made up from these conflicting desires. And Ghazali actually does a good job of making those desires um, in a lot of his writings simpler so that, you know, there's, there's, there's the lustful kind of, there's the consuming desire and there's the anger desire. And so if you think about it like that, right, then it, it, it actually still works. I mean, still most of our problems come down to these things ethically, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then when you go to the Sufi side and you think what's relevant about it, you don't have those same problems. Because Sufism was um, dealing more with, with the language of the heart, the language of intentionality, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're, they can be abstracted from history, but what I'm saying is they, they weren't as connected to the science of that time as the philosophical writings were. So it becomes easier to kind of translate that for someone who wants to take those writings and say, make themselves a better person in, you know, in this 21st century of ours, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, mashallah. I'm interested if there's, is there a specific um, allegory that is discussed in the book or a specific story that you might want to share or that you specifically sticks out to you or that you took with you from this research that really affected you? Oh man, so much of it. But I always say nothing, nothing, nothing really has ever uh, that I've read, re you know, that I've read in, in these kinds of allegories has really affected me ever as much as Ibn Tufayl's Hay Ibn Yaqban. That story is so, I mean, just from a literary perspective, so well told, mm. right? Um, the, it, some have called it the first novel. Mm. And, and I'm not saying it is, but if you read it as that, you see hints of the novel in it, mm. right? Because there's a kind of attention to detail you don't find in the other allegories. You honestly don't even find in Rumi. There's a kind of attention to, so what would it be like to be a child born on the island? You know, the story is that there's this yeah, child. Yeah, well, you maybe just yeah, uh, give an yeah, intro to the story. Yeah, I'll give, a, give a quick synopsis. There's this child. He's, um, there's two accounts of how he's born because Ibn Tofeo realizes that, um, you know, maybe the story, the first, his first version would be kind of hard to believe. So there, either he's spontaneously generated on the island. I won't get into how. Or he, or he's like like Moses, kind of floats there because something happened to his parents. I won't get into that version either. In either case, he's he's on an island where there's no other human beings and no major predators, which is a like like lions and things like that. That's important so that he can survive. Right? He's adopted by this deer um, and raised by by her, um, and he doesn't realize that he's meaningfully different from other animals until he starts to grow up a bit. Um, and when he does, he realizes, for example, that he doesn't have a natural covering for his genitals. He doesn't have natural weapons. Um, and uh, he, he takes care of these things. But the, the books, the, I mean, the story really shifts when his mother dies. And he's so distressed and so broken up about his the mother, death. the deer, the deer, the doe. <laughs> when she dies, um, he, he, he's so broken up by this that he wants to cure her. So he, re he literally reaches into her body to find out how he can fix her, right? And this is his introduction into the sciences. And this is really going to be his introduction to philosophy. What he starts to do is just using, um, using reason and intuition, he begins to, he makes this discovery about the whole universe just using that island. He's a person without language and he's a person without any other human beings, but he, he, 
reaches the pinnacles of philosophical reasoning and this is the interesting part um sufi uh you know witnessing the witnessing of the of the divine beloved he gets there i mean it takes him i think 57 years but he does mm-hmm. now there's this other island close by and uh there are two brothers salaman and absal and you can see he's using these these names from the avicenna tradition mm-hmm. salaman absal anyways uh uh Absal decides to um, leave. He wants to be a hermit too. And he ends up on this island with Hay. Mm. They end up together on the same island. And so now Hay comes back with him to civilization and it doesn't work out. I won't mm. spoil the ending. You can, you know, someone can read it by their own. But it's beautiful. It's a beautifully told story. And there's so many little details. Like, for example, when they meet, Hay can't recognize Absal because he's never seen another human being, you know? Um, and uh, Absal doesn't want to kind of encroach on, he thinks, he thinks Hay has come to the island for the same reason as him, to be alone, to be a hermit. So he's like, you know, I won't bother him. And then they meet. It's fascinating. It's told so well, you know? Mm-hmm. So from a literary perspective, that's the one that sticks out. Mm-hmm. But from a storytelling allegorical perspective, in terms of richness and complexity, you can't beat Rumi. That, that whole chapter, my whole, the entirety of chapter 10. And I don't know, see, I'm, I, I'm still waiting to get someone to really tell me how they did with it. It's a difficult chapter. Why? Because instead of doing what I do in all the other chapters where I pick out things and kind of talk, you know, kind of blend it into my writing, in chapter 10, I want Rumi to speak for himself. So I, I translate, I follow his logic. And as you know, as, as you, and you're a Rumi reader, you know how it goes to follow Rumi. You, you're going through all these different, you know, side alleys and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so... I'm following him for all of chapter 10. I'm following, uh, and uh, I translate long passages, and then I discuss, I try to react and bring other things from other chapters into it. So it's very different. But um, it's so rich. You, 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 take like, you take 10 lines of Rumi, and you realize, man, I have, I have 20 pages to write about here, you know? And there's so, there's so many historical references. There's um, theological references, Quranic, Hadith, all these things going on, he interweaves so much. And, and at the end, it's so entertaining and gives you so much uh, to work with on a spiritual or ethical or whatever you want to say level uh, that you can't beat that. So what is, in, in that chapter, um, is there a specific passage? Story, that he- yeah. Well, there's one story that holds everything together in chapter 10. But there's many, you know how he works. There's all these mini sort of yes. um, digression stories yeah. there too. So the main story is the judge and the Sufi. It's the story of a, um, there's, a uh, <clears throat> there's a man who's diagnosed, of course, at home because doctors did you know, home visits. Um, he's diagnosed as, uh, well, the doctor realizes he's going to die. But he doesn't want to tell the man that he's going to die because he wants him to enjoy his last few days. So he says, listen, um, your cure is just to do whatever you want. <laughs> anything, you know, anything you feel, do it. Because he wants him to enjoy his life. Wow. He says, okay, in that case, get out. I got to start, you know, I got to start doing this. He's, I, and so you have really what, what Rumi has created in the story. I don't know where he's gotten this. It's probably from a joke or something, but um, you have the person who completely is acting on impulse, right? He's your, your donkey that you brought up earlier. He's even beyond that. It's complete impulse. So he's walking along the riverbank and he sees this Sufi who's making wudu. And he gets, his first impulse is, I want to slap him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he goes up and he you know the back of the neck here he slaps him very hard 
So Sufi's first impulse is that he wants to punch him, uh, yank out his, you know, mustache hairs and all that. Um, but, the, but the Sufi says, you know, he, he, he looks at him, he can tell this is a very sick, sick man. If I were to punch him, he might die. And if he dies, I'll be punished. I'll be executed. So I won't do that. Instead, I'll drag him to the judge. So he drags this old man to the judge and um, the judge, um, you know, looks at him and says, listen, the Sufi's demanding um, uh, to be able to either strike, strike this guy back uh, or to have him uh, be carried around on a donkey in a shame parade in town. This is something that they, they would do at that time. But the, the judge doesn't see how that could be done because he says, this man won't live through this. You know, there's just so little left of him. So the judge's um, uh, uh, verdict is that um, he says, how much do you have to the sick man? The sick man says, I have nothing more than, I think it's six dir dirhams. He says, okay, uh, give, you know, you're going to need something to live on. So you, you should keep three of those dirhams for yourself and then give three to him. He says, look, in that case, he, he this is all going through the sick man's mind. He says, look, this is so cheap for me. And he has this urge to, to hit the judge. So he slaps the judge on the, on the neck. And he says, you keep my three and you keep the other three. Now I'm cured. <laughs> I'm cured of my disease, you know. Um, so that's the story in a nutshell. Um, but, the, but the richness of it goes on in the dialogue. And what, what happens is there's a very legalistic discussion. It's a fiqhi discussion about, about um, you know, retribution and punishment and all of that. Um, but it, it, what you realize is that virtue ethics in the story, um, it, it, it rules over the fiqh. It, you know, it's the way that the judge makes that decision. He looks at the situation that they're all living in and he has this sense of justice and he acts on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, a beautifully told story. And then there's all these little sort of ethical um, lessons sort of peppered throughout it. Uh, but it's, it's really a, a, a masterpiece. It's in book six, Daftar Six of the Right. Of the yeah, mashallah. And I remember from that, that chapter, you, you talk about, uh, Rumi talks about how taking someone's pulse is a way to understand the health of their heart. Right. And what's beautiful is that the heart, you know, it's hidden, it's, it's inward, but it's, you know, the heart obviously symbolically is the spiritual heart too. But yet you, you take it at the furthest place from the heart, on a sense, right? right? All the way at the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. And so, he, you know, he uses that to launch into this commentary about how the signs of the unseen are in everything, that everything is, is a pulse. Everything is a pulse of God. Right. And then also for, for the human being, the actions indicate the reality of someone's heart. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing. Like reading Rumi is so profound because you, you kind of get dipped into his universe and how he sees the world is straight, like pure theophany. That yeah. Everything is, yeah. Just, yeah. is just the pure unfolding of the divine. Just God speaking to you at all time, in all moments, in all places, telling you about himself. You yeah. Know? No, it's a, and that's a great example, by the way. I mean, if you think about it from a modern perspective, right? So if you went into, um, you, you had a room full of people and you're like, okay, so this chair is real, this table is real. Is humility real? Mm. Well, they say, well, it's not real in the same way. Is, is arrogance real? Well, it's not real in the same way. It's a conception. It's, so what Rumi's saying with that pulse example is that it's real. Why? Because you can tell by looking at a person, when the person walks into the room, 
everything about their, you know, anatomy is giving you arrogance. Mm. And so what's, why isn't that, you know, that's, that's a very real thing, right? That's how things work, right? There's a, there's a concept, there's this thing called, we call humility, but it, as you say, it becomes manifest um, in the body and then on the face, you know, um, and, and more than the face, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that's actually, beautiful. You can see arrogance, you can see humility, you can, you can see these things. And that's the point of having a, a spiritual guide is that just like a doctor, a master doctor, master physician can look at someone and, and diagnose them based on various symptoms. Right. A master, a spiritual master can see immediately the kind of diseases of the heart that are plaguing right. an individual just for sitting with them for a few moments, seeing their arrogance or self-importance or seeing their, even their lack of self-esteem or seeing their, the, the, the way they're kind of veiled by various traits and various qualities. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You're completely, you're completely right. That's a very roomy esque reading of it too. That's mm -hmm. what you would, Alhamdulillah. Well, I mean, we could go on and on, but uh, you've been very generous with your time. Wow. Thank and, you for uh, your interest. In, it's in been great to, to discuss this. And uh, mashallah, I'm, I'm so happy that you wrote this book and I look forward to kind of continuing on diving into it. Um, it's, it's one that you can read. And what's cool too is, and I kind of did this, you can jump around. Each chapter is kind yeah. of self-contained. They That's reference right. each other and it does yeah. build, but yeah. you know, you could still kind of jump around and uh and and take each chapter on yeah that's true yeah. yeah well thank you for reading it really thank you for uh for you know this conversation it was really pleasant alhamdulillah it's my pleasure and uh where can people uh find your work or your writing or this book or uh, if i don't know if you have online a website or things like that just let our listeners know so they can Follow well, up. yeah, you, uh, well, the book is, uh, you know, it's anywhere books are sold, Amazon, all that, you can find it. Um, but uh, my work in general, I have a, I have a pretty decent academia.edu page. Mm -hmm. um, you just, just Google my name, Cyrus Zargar, um, and academia.edu. And I try to put everything that's not, you know, the book, uh, that's not sort of that a publisher wouldn't get on my case about. I try to put everything on, online so you can get my articles and things there if you're interested. Inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. And what are you working on now? So I'm working on a book on Attar, the poet, the Persian poet Attar. And um, uh, tentatively, the title is Religion of Love. And I'm really playing, I'm really thinking about those two words, religion and love. And thinking about Attar as a, almost what you might in contemporary sense call a philosopher of religion. Mm -hmm. um, and at the core of his view of what religion is, is this relationship um, that we call love? So I'm, I'm thinking I'm 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 working through sort of theories of religion about space and ritual, and all of that, and applying it to the poetry of Rumi. I mean, Atar. Atar, who is the main, the biggest influence on Rumi, right? Right. Yep. Biggest influence on, on Rumi. Um, he wrote narrative uh, po poems, m much in the same vein as the Masnavi, um, that of course influenced Rumi and others. Right, Mentakatayir, right, the Conference yeah. of the Birds is his. Right. What, what would you recommend uh, as the best kind of uh, translation or the best? Um, I don't know if there's even a commentary in English, but for, if we, if someone wanted to read uh, the Conference of the Birds in English, well, um, 
so I've always used the 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 Peter Avery one. Uh, I'm trying to see what there's a there's a new translation out there, and I've seen parts of it. And it was really exciting. Let me see if I can find the name. Um, there's a new translation of the Conference of the Birds. Because I know a lot of people say that, you know, I've heard people say that are scholars of Persian and scholars of Sufism, that that book really gives you everything that, you know, if you're going to read one book on the kind of Persian Sufi tradition, like that, it's just like the sustained allegory of profound depth. You know, it is. And it gives you, it gives you everything in a lot of the same way that the Masnavi does. But um, so I, you know, in the polished mirror, I, I started my work on Attar. So the, mm-hmm. I think it's chapter um, nine. Mm-hmm. Chapter nine is, is, is mostly focused with the Conference of the Birds in the Bosch Mirror. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the Conference of the Birds has so much uh, in terms of, you know, um, it, it, it's the, I would say the best uh, frame tale to, to, to uh, communicate the journey of the soul, right? It's done so well. And then, yes, it has these small sort of vignettes, little stories throughout that tell you, you know, uh, that have these ethical lessons. Um, uh, it's, ma- it's masterfully done. So the translation that I still have only seen parts of, so, but uh, there's Chole uh, Wolpe, uh, uh, last name W-O-L-P-A-E, W-O-L-P-E. Um, there's a, it's a new translation. I've seen parts of it and it looks great. But I always used, uh, I always like, like for, when I would teach, and I had students who didn't read Persian. I would always use Peter Avery's uh, translation, and that was uh, that was a really good one. Uh, that's a really good one too. Um, I mean, obviously, you're going to disagree, right? I, I, since I translate and he translates, there's parts that I'm. I say, okay, I disagree with him here sure, and sure. here. But big picture, it's pretty easy to understand. Has good notes. The, mm-hmm. the Avery version. Yeah, I I don't know. Is are any of those like rhyming? Did I keep the rhyme couplet? No, Avery's doesn't. I mean, it has a kind of poetic sense to it, but it yeah, it's I find it difficult actually. Like for instance, some people translate Rumi rhyming as rhyming couplets, yeah. and I get the the yeah. point of it is to kind of yeah. simulate that, but it's it tends to feel forced to me. It's it's kind of I, I find it very difficult to read translations yeah. that also rhyme. I, I'm I, I'm I, I see that too. And so when I teach Rumi, I, uh, I do Alan Williams' translation of, uh, mm. of the, the first. Uh, he, just, he just did the first one, the first volume. He has a, because what he does is, well, Alan Williams, when he translates the Mesnavi, he, um, he, he does it, he kind of does blank verse. Um, so it doesn't rhyme, but it kind of has a meter. But if he needs to, he abandons that. So if it's like, sure. if the line, if the, if the sense dictates it, he just right. like, okay, it's fine. I'll just do my best, you know? Yeah. So it makes it very kind of poet, you know, have a poetic feel to it, but as you say, without the rhyme. So, yeah. Mashallah. Hey, well, thank you for your time. And uh, hey, thanks for having me. We, uh, we're, we're honored to, to speak with you about this. Well, the honors was mine as well. Thank you for speaking here.